second reading comes from the book of Luke 7, 36 to 8, verse 3. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined the tab at the at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and, the, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the, anoint, with, with the ointment. <clears throat> now when the Pharisees was, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who, that, who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, of she is a sinner. And Jesus answered say, and Jesus answering saying, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say, teacher. A certain money lender had two de debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50, and they could not pay. He canceled the debt for both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon said, the one I suppose for whom had cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came to, I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven, for she loved, for she loved much. But he who is given, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon after he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and, the 12, and the 12 were with him. And also, and also some women who had, who had been healed of evil spirits and affirmities. Mary called Magdalene, who, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herald household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for, he, for them out of their means. The Gospel of the Lord. Father, we ask... Um, one of the most wonderful uh, things that you promise uh, is that you, you do not merely observe us from a distance, uh, but you get involved. Uh, you get involved by speaking to us through these stories, through the Bible, and 
You get involved in our lives uh, through the Holy Spirit. You do a deep work within us. You bring us to a place where we can see Jesus and then see ourselves, see our sin, see his grace, see all of it vividly. We need you to do that. We need you to make it vivid to us. Uh, your truth, your good news, yourself, make yourself clear. Grant us to hear and to trust. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Uh, and it's helpful if you turn back to uh, page 9. We're continuing our series in uh, the book of Luke. And, and uh, let me ask a question that might on the face of it sound uh, very, very obvious or, or basic. Um, here's, here's the question. Uh, how do I love God? Or maybe I could say, how do I, God, how do I love God more? Um, now, anyone who's been around church for very long knows that, that in uh, church land, we talk about loving God a lot. The Bible talks about loving God a lot. And there's a very good reason for that, because uh, in the Bible and in the thought of Jesus, and, and it really is from one end of the Bible to the other end of the Bible, love, it, love for God is the fundamental foundation upon which everything else is built. In fact, already in our service this morning, we've mentioned it. Every time we have here at Emmanuel a Holy Communion service, which is what the one we're in right now, um, we always at the beginning of the service... Uh, uh, we rehearse the summary of the law is the fancy word for it. It was on page three. We said this, we quoted Jesus and we said, hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You remember this? Page three. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. Uh, so, part of what that means, the first commandment means it's the foundation of all other commandments. And part of the point there is that Jesus is summing up the entire moral vision of the Bible. And he says, um, loving God, a love for God is the foundation upon which everything else uh, flourishes. And, and therefore, if you try to live a moral life or a Christian life without love for God... It's a little bit like trying to, you know, I don't know, it's like trying to make an omelet without eggs. Whatever it is you're making, it's not an omelet. Uh, and similarly, if you try to do lots of things in the spiritual life or uh, a lot of moral activity or those sorts of things, you might accomplish something, but whatever it is you accomplish without love for God, it's not the Jesus thing. Love for God according to Jesus, is the non-negotiable starting point for authentic spirituality. It's the command underneath all the other commands. And this brings up, for me, a problem. And it's the problem of how. How do you love God? And if it's not clear why that's a problem, um, I'm going to do something very silly. Get ready for silly. Everybody close your eyes. And grit your teeth. Don't break them, but grit them. And, the, and love. Love more. Come on. Come on, get the engine going. Generate some love, team. Okay, 
you can open your eyes. Did it work? Okay, right? It doesn't work. Okay, so here's my question. How, if, if you got, love God is a command. How do you obey a command when trying hard doesn't help? Okay, how do we love God? How do we love God more? Um, now, the reason I'm asking this question is that the passage we just read is one of the most beautiful stories that illustrates what real love for God is all about and where it comes from. So we're going to get into this story, and I'm going to ask three questions. Uh, what does true love for God look like? Number one. Number two, uh, where does it come from? And number three, what do we do? Uh, what does the real love for God look like? Uh, where does it come from, and what do we do about it? First of all, what does real love for God look like? Now, come with me into the story. Um, the scene opens up, and we're at a dinner table. Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house. Now, the Pharisees were a little bit like a religious watchdog group uh, of the day, so they were extremely serious. They were very strict, and many of them were very curious about Jesus. And so this particular Pharisee, this, he's called Simon, uh, he wants to know whether or not Jesus is trustworthy. And so uh, Simon invites Jesus to dinner. It might have been a public dinner. So sometimes uh, uh, rabbis would invite other rabbis around, and the doors would be open, and the local uh, village would be able to come, not to the dinner, but they could kind of sit on the outside and listen in so that they could learn. That might have been what's happening here. And you, to picture the scene, you need to understand that they're not sitting around a table like ours. They're not sitting in chairs like ours. What they're doing is they're uh, more close to the ground. It's a low table. They're gathered around a low table, leaning their left shoulders or their left arm on cushions set on the ground. They're eating with their right hand, and their feet are extended outward from the table on the ground, on the mat of some type. Now, that's going to be important as we go on. Now, everything's fine until verse 37. Look at it. Behold. You always want to watch for those. That means, that's the way the author says, check this out. A woman from the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, that's where it all goes sideways. Why? Well, this woman is called a sinner. Uh, what was her sin? We don't know. Except we kind of know. Because to designate a woman with this term, a sinner, on the one hand it's broad, but in the context, almost certainly, this is what we would call uh, somebody who's working in the sex industry. And the minute she enters the room, just the tension in the room redlines. Why? Well, she's everything that a Pharisee's against. And in a Pharisaic way of thinking, even just her presence in the room could cause a kind of ritual impurity. And especially if she starts, I know this sounds odd, but if she starts touching things, uh, it, it, the concern is that it's going to cause a ritual or religious impurity throughout the home. And then she starts touching things. She brings out this alabaster jar of ointment. So it's perfumed oil. 
And you can imagine everybody in the room going, oh my goodness, no, it's not this is not happening. I, I know how she bought that ointment. And I know what that's used for. But passing by everybody's stare, she goes to Jesus' feet. And, and she's clearly about ready to anoint Jesus' feet. She wants to bathe Jesus' feet. But um, right at that moment, it appears that she lost emotional control. And she begins to weep. And the tears begin to drip on Jesus' feet. And we know that Jesus' feet was not, were not washed. And so the tears mix with the dry dust on Jesus' feet. And his feet begin to be smeared and messy. And so perhaps without even thinking, she, she, she uncovers her head, which would have been covered, and she uncovers her head, and she lets down her long hair, and she begins to, to wipe Jesus' feet as she weeps. And, and that's when everybody gasps. Why? Because in this culture, uh, a, an adult woman was never uncovered her hair in public. She would uncover her hair with, in private with other women, perhaps at home with very small children, but especially if she was alone in private with her husband. And so when she unveils her hair, just everybody gasps, and some people are averting their eyes, and they're blushing, and the host, Simon, is raging. And then, and then she uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet clean, and then she does what she was hoping to do. She pours out oil, and then she begins to kiss his feet. And I suppose at that moment, some of the people in the room just go, just, just, I, I can't believe I'm actually seeing this happen here in a Pharisee's house. And, and who, who in the world would let this happen to his feet? She would do this here in public? Emmanuel, it's hard to imagine a way that they could have been more mistaken about what was happening. Uh, there's a verse in the New Testament, St. Paul uh, writes this. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, nothing is pure. Uh, and they were unable to see anything happening in this room but what was impure. And they were completely wrong. The, they interpreted it all as a, a kind of sensual suggestive moment, a seductive moment, perhaps, and they were wrong. The only sexual thing was happening in the dirty minds of her detractors. Rather, this woman, Emmanuel, was showing you and me and everyone what it looks like to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This woman, in this moment, is being a master of the moral law. Look at it more closely. There are three aspects of her love. Her love is honoring. Her love is self-giving. Her love is intimate. First of all, it's honoring. Uh, glance down to verse 44. Jesus is reading the room really, really well, and in particular, he's reading Simon's heart really, really well, and he points out to Simon the contrast 
between how this woman is honoring him and how uh, Simon dishonored him. Now, backstory here. When you arrived at somebody's house for dinner, um, it was normal and it was expected and it was required that the host show the guest some courtesies. Uh, so it would begin at the door. You would, you would uh, kiss the guest on the cheek. Um, it's like a handshake, like a hug for us, something like that. Uh, and then, very importantly, you would arrange for their feet to be washed. Uh, everybody here knows uh, if you have uh, walked around New York City in the summer with sandals on, which some of us dis discourage, um, you know you need to wash your feet when you get home. Uh, uh, dust plus sweat plus hot is smelly, okay? And so, but then you also might uh, provide uh, some oil for your guests to kind of freshen up. Simon didn't do any of that for Jesus. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he didn't think Jesus was worth it. Maybe he thought he was too important. I don't know. But he didn't do it. But whereas Simon dishonored Jesus, this woman shows spectacular honor for Jesus. And friends, true love for God always honors God's dignity, always honors God's glory. True love to God always honors God's majesty. And you can see that here in spades. But not only is true love for God honoring, true love for God is also an extravagant giving of oneself. Uh, typically, in this context, if somebody was going to wash your feet, it would usually be a servant or a slave. What's so striking in this scene is that this woman is neither. What's so striking about this woman is that she is doing this voluntarily and freely, not because she must, but because she wants to. She's giving not mere duty, not mere service. She's giving herself. She wants to. And therein, some of the emotion, some of the significance of her emotion comes out there. She's giving herself. But while she is pouring out her very self before Jesus, Simon, this expert in the religious law, is sitting there, and what he gives is nothing but derision. Verse 30, 39, if this guy was a prophet, he would know who this woman is, that she's a, a sinner. Do you hear the derision? Derision towards Jesus, derision towards the woman. It's the opposite of the two commands. Instead of loving God and loving neighbor, he's giving derision to one and to the other. And I'm sure in that moment that he felt like he was standing up for righteousness and standing up for morality and so forth, but in actual fact, he was guilty of a profound sin. He was deriding God's son, and he was deriding one of God's daughters. What does love for God look like? Well, it honors God, like this one woman honored Jesus. Number two, it's self-giving, like this woman gave of herself so freely. But then thirdly, True love for God is also intimate. I said before that this is not a sexual scene. I expect most people thought it was. It was not a sexual moment, but it was an intimate moment. 
it was full of passion. You can't miss it, can you? I mean, she gives her touch. Uh, she, gave, she gave her tears. She gives her hair. It's a tender moment of holy love. And that's what loving God is to be like. Manuel, this, this is hard for us in our culture to understand because we have a tendency to sexualize intimacy. We have a tendency to boil things down to sexuality as a kind of foundation for just about, or for many, many things. According to the Bible, God made us all sexual beings, and that was originally part of his good design, and it remains so despite the fact that it is also broken. But despite that, from the very beginning, we cannot be reduced to mere sexual beings. God designed us for an intimacy that transcends sexuality. I mean, you can see that in Jesus right here. Jesus is the most fulfilled human being in all of history. He was a celibate man. And the Bible teaches that God's plan for every one of us is to unite Jesus and Jesus' people in a bond of love that's so profound and so intense and so passionate and so intimate that it will fulfill the deepest desires of your heart, not just in this life, but for all eternity. And that's the kind of intimacy that this woman knew. And it's the kind of love that God wants to draw us all to enjoy. It might be a bit beyond our imagining, but it's not beyond God's power to give. What does love for God look like? It's honoring. It's self-giving, and it's intimate. But that brings us back to the original question. How? How do you, how do you, you can't work up that kind of love. Some of us can't even imagine that kind of love. Where does it come from? And the answer, Emmanuel, is an extravagant experience of forgiveness. Go back to the reading. Uh, Simon is there, and he's just seething. If Jesus was a real prophet, he would know who she is. Meanwhile, Jesus, as a real prophet, is seeing Simon's heart and diagnosing Simon's sin. And so in verse 41, Jesus tells a story. It's about two guys who both of whom are in debt. One owes 50 denarii, uh, the other uh, 500. The point is both of them are insolvent. Even the guy that owes 50 is never going to be able to pay that back. And remarkably in the story, the creditor forgives both of them. And, and Jesus then turns and asks Simon, which of the uh, ones whose debts were forgiven, which one's going to love the creditor more? In verse uh, 43, Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. And friends, that opens up the whole thing. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who have not, don't. And here's the point. The only thing that can fill the human heart with true love for God, the only thing that can fill the human heart with a love that is honoring to God, with a love that is self-giving towards God freely, with a love that is filled with intimacy beyond our capacity to imagine, the only thing that can generate that kind of love is an extravagant experience of forgiveness. 
Apparently, we don't know the details, before this, the women had met Jesus. We don't know the story, but there's so many other stories we can, re, we can reimagine what it must have been. At some point, she had met Jesus, and in the encounter with Jesus, he had ministered a forgiveness that she had not anticipated. And when Jesus' forgiveness touched her soul, it triggered a cataclysmic transformation. It released a flood of love towards Jesus that had never been there before of a quality she had never experienced, of a type she had never imagined, but that her soul had always longed for. But I want to be careful here. There's something that's easy to misunderstand. Take a look at, back at verse 47. It's not, Emmanuel, it's not that she loved Jesus so much that he said, oh, I'll forgive you. Love did not precede forgiveness. It looks like that in 47, but you have to look at verse 50. It was her faith that saved her. Meaning, it was her uh, consent to receive Jesus' offer of forgiveness, faith, that opened her to the transformation of love. It was that experience of forgiveness that animated love in her that she could never have generated herself. And the same principle explains Simon only in the inverse. Why is Simon so callous? Why is he so hard-hearted? He had done a lot of things right. Why was he getting it all wrong? Uh, he, had, he had done lots of good things. Why is his soul without love. And here's the answer. Simon had performed for God, but he had never received from God. Simon was good at being good, but he was terrible at receiving mercy. And by not receiving mercy, it sabotaged his capacity to love. I expect it worked like this. Um, Simon experienced God as a kind of divine taskmaster. You better get it right. Uh, if you read the life of Martin Luther, early in Martin Luther's life, he lived under a view of God where God was always waving his divine bony finger at Martin Luther saying, you better get it right or I've got hell heated up waiting for you. And one day, Martin Luther was talking to his spiritual director, and he says, love God? Sometimes I hate him. You see, when that's your view of God, you might conform your behavior, but you will not love God like that. You will serve him, maybe, but at best, you'll serve him like a slave. And the terrible irony is that when we slave away under that view of God, then all my good works and all my good behavior and all my laudable achievements can end up alienating me further and further away from the God for whom I was made. I can end up by my good works a worse sinner than anybody I know. I can end up hating God and being very moralistic about it. And that's why Christianity teaches that your good behavior is never going to save you. 
Simon had a good moral resume, but his heart was as alienated from God as any sinner that he despised. And therefore, Emmanuel, I've got to ask you a question, and this is so important, Emmanuel. I know many of you, some of you well, you're very good at being good. Do you love God? Do you love God like this woman loves God? Without that love, your good works and mine will lead us away from God and not towards him. And if you want that love, then you need to think about foot washing. Not this moment of foot washing, but another occasion. Another dinner where Jesus was sitting with his disciples. And in the midst of dinner, once again, no one's feet had been washed. And this time, Jesus got up from the table. And he changed his clothes, and he put on the clothing of a slave. And he, and he went around from disciple to disciple, despite their protests. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wash your feet now. And people like Simon said, no, you're not. And Jesus said, oh, yes, I am. And as Jesus knelt down, God in flesh knelt down, and as his disciples felt the fingers of Jesus clutch their feet and scrub the dust and the grime off of their feet, in that moment they were experiencing a kind of love that the human soul has longed for but cannot know without Jesus. It's a love that is honoring and self-giving and intimate that originates only in God and comes towards sinful humanity. And then Jesus got up, and they didn't really understand what was happening, and so Jesus followed through on that promise of love the next day. When the next day happened, Jesus himself died upon the cross. And when he died upon the cross, it was the ultimate expression of love. It's more than that, but never less than that. On the cross, Jesus was taking upon himself the penalty of all sin, taking upon himself the derision of a Simon, and all the failings of a woman like the one that washed his feet, and all the failings and the sin of your heart and mine, he took that upon himself so that he could pay the penalty we could never pay, and so that he could give us a love we could never deserve. Friends, Christianity begins when you feel Jesus Christ wash your feet. When you feel Jesus Christ wash those most ashamed parts of your heart, that's when it all begins. And when you feel Jesus Christ paying the penalty for your sins and forgiving you, when you sense Jesus' forgiveness and love, not just for your obviously wicked deeds, but also for the really good behavior that you have you have performed with a cold, loveless heart of a, of a Simon. That has to be forgiven too. But when you sense that experience of forgiveness, it catalyzes in you a love that you cannot generate yourself. And so what do we do? How do we respond? We've got to do three things. 
Give up, give in, and give over. We need to give up at least two things. Uh, Some of us struggle with self-loathing. And when you struggle with self-loathing, I bet the woman, this woman before this day, struggled with self-loathing. And that's when you see your failures like this, and they're big, and they eclipse the mercy of God. And so you just sit there and you wallow in the self-loathing. We're going to have to give that up. And on the other hand, we need to give up something called presumption. Presumption is when you don't see the bigness of your sins so much, but you kind of assume that for a person like you, all things considered, God probably has an obligation to forgive you. And that might have been what Simon, where Simon was. Both self-loathing and presumption, both of them, you've got to give them up. Because the reality is our sin is bigger than we think it is. Our sin is such a big deal that it required the death of the Son of God to purchase our pardon. That's a real big deal. But on the other hand, the cross of Christ is bigger by far. And the cross of Christ pours out a mercy that floods us with immeasurable, infinite love. So give up your self-loathing and give up your presumption by looking at the cross of Christ and seeing both the weight of sin and the glory of grace. Give up and then give in. Give in to Christ's self-giving to you. Give in to Jesus washing your feet. Give in to Jesus' mercy for you until you find yourself unable to do anything but sing about it. And worship Jesus until you find yourself with the gift of tears, crying tears that on the one hand they're tears for the remorse of sin, but in a greater way they're tears of forgiveness and they're tears of intimacy and they're tears of one who's been named a daughter and a son of God. So give up, give in, and then give over. Give over your life. Jesus gave all that he is for you. This woman realized that, and she wanted to give all that she was to Jesus. And as she broke that alabaster jar and poured out her wealth, she was giving all that she is. And that's the Christian life. That's why we obey. We don't obey to earn. We don't obey like a slave. We obey because we have been given God. God has given himself to us in Jesus Christ. And we want to give all that we are to him in love again. And therefore, obedience becomes a way of saying every day, oh, yes, Jesus, I love you. I love you because you first loved me. I love you with honor and with self-giving and with intimacy. And this is the love for which we were made, Emmanuel. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.